This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mangan. And I'm Luca Livides Mebre. And our topic this week is... I'm not sure how should I call it. Is it called iPhone X or iPhone 10, Yannick? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. We'll have to ask with a new Twitter poll. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Please keep your answers to 280 characters or less. Um, so first we have some follow-up. Uh, do you want to start with this episode two follow-up? Of course, on our favorite topics, the topics that never die, I would like to welcome our Finns, Danes, Swedes, and UE friends to the Apple Pay Club. So yes, Finland, Denmark, Sweden, and United Arab Emirates got Apple Pay support on October 23rd. So they are officially being able to use Apple Pay like all of the lucky Apple Pay clubs club members. Like us? Uh, yes. On top of that, uh, Apple Pay Cash is currently in beta in the iOS 11.2 beta, which launched uh, last week, I think? A week before? Yeah. No, I think it's at the beginning of the week. Yeah, something like that. Uh, Apple Pay Cash is interpersonal money transfer in iMessage. So if you're a brave soul who doesn't really care about having your money lost into the ether because iMessage is unreliable... Oh uh, my goodness. <sighs> you can go use Apple Pay Cash. I'm going to continue to be using literally anything else. Uh, I should also point out that uh, at least one of our listeners has set up a Suica card on a brand new iPhone 8 or iPhone 10. Uh, so that is exciting. So we now have confirmation that you can do the whole setup from start to finish on an iPhone. Uh, the one exception does seem to be um, named Suica cards. Uh, Suica train passes, you can actually put your name on it so that if it gets lost, you can redeem it somehow. I'm not quite sure how that would work with something like Apple Pay, um, but you can technically still create named Suica cards for Apple Pay, and you can't do that without actually living in Japan. But for everything else, uh, you can use it just fine, and it does appear to be working great. Um, next up, I have some follow-up about episode 47, which was about Pokemon Go. Did you hear the news that Niantic is working on a Harry Potter AR game called Harry Potter Wizards Unite? No. Well, that's the news. Uh, they're working on an AR game. I hope it's not literally just like... It, to some people, you could take a look at Pokemon Go and sort of say, this is like a reskin of... um, What was their game that they had before? I forgot the name because it's so irrelevant now that Pokemon Go exists. Uh, well, whatever the old Niantic game was that whose name I have completely forgotten... Oh, it's not... In, no, it's not Inception, but it's not Invasion... No, it's... I feel so stupid. I feel old. Um, But yeah, I hope it's just not another reskin of that game. Um, Oh, it's it's so close in my brain, but I can't get those letters out. Oh, it's so frustrating. But yeah, uh, so they're working on Harry Potter game, and it's going to help you explore the wider, expanded universe of Harry Potter. I, I'm kind of surprised that Harry Potter is still up. Ingress. Yeah, yeah, okay. I I know it started with an I. I Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so I hope it's not another Ingress uh, reskin. Um, and yeah, uh, so look forward to that, Harry Potter fans. Yeah, uh, I'm sure I'm sure that we'll hear about it quite soon if it comes into the uh, Harry Potter news uh, news feed of Tony because he's a huge Harry Potter fan. So I guess after the episode, I will just mention it to him. Cool. On episode 57, which was our first episode after I returned from Japan this year, uh, we mentioned a game that was brand new at the time, which was Super Mario Run. And now that the game has been out for basically almost a year, 
um, Nintendo has given comments on the success of Super Mario Run, and what they've said is Super Mario Run's 200 million downloads didn't result in acceptable profits. Uh, and the conclusion to draw from this is that uh, subsequent Nintendo uh, mobile games are going to follow a traditional free-to-play form- formula like Fire Emblem Heroes, which is currently out, and Animal Crossing Pocket Camp, which should be out by the time next episode comes out. Um, yeah, which I'm greatly looking for forward to. Uh, I think it's the 23rd or 24th. It's somewhere around my brother's birthday. Um, so yeah, that's coming out very soon. It's also technically available in New Zealand if you fake your uh, iTunes account uh, because they soft launched it the night they announced the game there. Uh, but everywhere else in the world needs to wait until like last week of November to be able to play it. And again, this is basically... They took, um, there was a side mode in one of the expansions for the 3DS Animal Crossing, which allowed you to have a little trailer park. And basically they took that and made that a free-to-play game, except now you have to potentially pay real money for stuff to Tom Nook, which is very strange. There are even, like, photos of Tom Nook swimming in a bath of money uh, in the (laughs) game, really to rub it in. Uh, I mean, it's always sort of been hinted at in the game that, Tom Nook is a rich bastard because of all the money you spent you give to him, but now it's going to be your real hard-earned cash, which is kind of worrisome. But we will surely talk more about it. We originally intended to do an episode about all the Nintendo mobile games earlier this year, but we kept saying we're waiting until Animal Crossing comes out, and Animal Crossing was supposed to come out in March, and now it's coming out in November. So uh, maybe next year we'll do an episode about yeah, Nintendo it feels mobile to me games. It will be uh, 2018. Yeah, definitely. Uh, before we move on to the bigger follow-up, which is about our Gran Turismo Sport episode, I do have a podcast recommendation, which is something I try to do from time to time because I know that some of our listeners actually appreciate it when we recommend podcasts for people who enjoy stuff that we do. Uh, so I would like to recommend the Dissect podcast. Uh, Dissect is a podcast with song-by-song analysis of entire musical albums, which is a pretty interesting premise for a show to begin with. Season one was about Kendrick Lamar's Two Pimple Butterfly, but more importantly for this show, uh, the ongoing second season focuses on friend of the show Kanye West's masterpiece of an oh album, my, my Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, uh, which is a fantastic album and maybe one of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time. And it is highly recommended to anybody who appreciates our level of nitpicking over little details on this podcast. And I would even... Oh, wait, correct that statement. Okay. Your level of nitpicking. <laughs> Fair. Um... Yeah, so if you enjoy my level of complaining about Thank everything you. and obsessing over details and trying to analyze the details as much as possible, this podcast is great. And I would also recommend it to people who are not fans of Kanye West, because I think that if you actually listen to, well, you can listen to the entire season, but I would recommend listening to either uh, All of the Lights or Monsters episodes, uh, because first of all, those are the two best songs on the album. And second of all, they are just packed full of information that contextualize sort of Kanye West's madness. Uh, and I am of the belief that Kanye West is a genius that is very misunderstood. And he does a lot of weird fucked up things sometimes, but it sort of makes sense why he does those weird fucked up things if you know the larger context. And I think a lot of people would learn a lot of cool things uh, by listening to Dissect. So definitely go check that out if you want to do that. Uh, we're going to talk about Gran Turismo Sports. Whoa, wait, you wait, forgot wait, wait. my second piece of follow-up. Oh, that's true. Uh, well, go ahead, because then yes. I have to apologize for the sound. <laughs> yes. So last but not least, on episode 73, which is closer to uh, all of the follow-up, uh, Yannick talked about low-end product of the 
tech industry. And one of the examples he mentioned was Microsoft sadly felt at them at a modern <laughs> mobile platform oh, called Windows Phone. Yes. Or Windows, Windows 10 now, but oh well. Um, I am kind of sad to announce that one of the last manufacturers that had planned for IN devices for Windows Phone cancel their plans. HP uh, announced a couple of week, a couple of days, no, a couple of weeks ago that they are canceling their last Windows Phone plans. And I'll put a link in the show notes regarding the Diverge article where you see some bla- like company wise PR stuff saying, "Oh yeah, we were supposed to follow uh, to support uh, this uh, Windows Phone platform until March 2019." But nope, nope, nope. Yep, and what makes this very sad is that there are now no Windows phones being sold anymore. Uh, that was the last company that was making them, and there are no more. And this makes my boss very sad because he is a devout Windows phone user, and he absolutely loves his uh, Lumia, and he's been buying uh, like brand new uh, overstock models of the Lumia he has so that he has a stockpile of them so he can switch if ever his phone breaks or whatever. Um, so he really, really loves that phone and it pains him that he will have to either switch to Android or iPhone one day. Uh, so in the meantime, he is just going to be running through his stockpile of Lumias, which is kind of amusing to be honest. Uh, but the other thing is he told me that apparently Microsoft's plans, uh, according to what is rumored is that they're going to be creating a fork of Android called Andromeda, which is basically going to be a Windows phone skin on top of Android. Not sure that's going to work because they also tried that with the Nokia X, which was actually called the Nokia X, uh, back a couple of years ago, and that failed catastrophically. So I, I think he, no, I think you meant the Nokia, Nokia then. No, no, it's the Nokia yes. X. Um, so yeah, so th- that might be coming down the pipeline if those rumors are true. I no longer have sources inside Microsoft, so I can't confirm or deny this. Uh, but yeah, uh, so that's cool. Um, okay, are we done yeah. with the Windows Phone fallout? I think we are now, so we can move to Gran Turismo. Yeah, so last episode, uh, of course, we recorded it live uh, while we were on Twitch. And what I realized when I was editing the episode is that basically we fucked up. Uh, or at least I fucked up. Well, we both fucked up. Uh, so... Okay, okay, why am I bl- getting blamed on? Right you're now? only partially sure. getting blamed, but it's also my fault. So we did a test recording before the uh, episode was actually being recorded. And what I realized by comparing the test episode with the real episode is that when we know we are testing the thing, we speak differently than when we're actually on the episode, (laughs) which means that you were softer uh, in the actual episode, and I was much louder. And that means that the balancing of volume, which was fine in the uh, test recording, ended up being completely out of whack, and I was basically (laughs) clipping the entire episode, and you were low volume uh so i just want to apologize to everyone i think we should probably not do these kinds of episodes until we find a better setup for better sound quality um and we can still do episodes where we talk about games that we've played because like we've always done that except these special live episodes until we find a better way to do them i think we should just put them on hold to be honest uh and with that out of the way let's talk about championship events yep um, Yannick and I wanted to revisit Gran Turismo because last episode, the championship event, uh, were not, uh, started yet. And they started, uh, last weekend on November 4th, 3rd? I don't remember exactly, but last weekend. Um, 
so when you will hear my voice it will be uh nearly complete or i think sunday will be the last day of this current championship but the gist of it is there were two ones the FIGT championship and the manufacturer championship where you would race against competitor of the same manufacturer contract that we discussed um i think yannick you realized something quite fast because you were able to do a couple of events before i could chime in and you realized quite quickly that championship are there to really help you regain all of those sportsmanship rating that you lost in normal daily events. Yeah, so I figured out how this works. Um, so there are some differences in how these events play out than uh, daily events. In daily events, you basically qualify by doing a time trial by yourself uh, in like the 15 minutes prior to the race going live. And this is an optional process. In championship events... Uh, the race starts with a warm up for a minute and a half or two minutes or something. Then there's a qualifier where everyone is on the same track and, uh, trying to get the fastest time while on that track. And then and you have eight minutes for that. Depend, not depending on the size. It's eight minutes where the track takes three minutes to go through it or 45 seconds. Yeah. Which is kind of enraging to be honest, but that's, I do agree. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the actual race, which is, just a normal race except longer um and the thing that is causing your sportsmanship rating to spike up in these things is first of all like everything is longer uh so that helps uh but also the period of time where you're eligible to get sportsmanship rating boosts is also up so what i mean by that is in your previous thing your qualifiers you would spend about the same amount of time qualifying by yourself, but that wouldn't count because there wouldn't be other cars on the track. So you wouldn't get SR buffs every time you go through a split cleanly. Whereas now in the qualifier, since there are other cars on the tracks, you get rated for SR. So that means that those qualifying laps count toward your thing, and all of your laps during the race also count. And because the races are longer, and because people tend to be more spread out during those longer races, you have more chances of not hitting other people, which means you have a better chance of raising your SR. Because of this, I went from E to A in a week, and I haven't missed a night of events. So I think it's like four or five of those event nights that I've played. I went from E to A, and I'm probably going to continue climbing until the end of this thing. Um, So it's highly effective. And another thing that I noticed is it's actually much easier to be in the lead when people are playing cleanly than when they're actually intentionally trolling and ramming into you. Uh, so I've noticed huge differences just going from D to C. Like that made huge differences in my ability to finish at the top of the, uh, of the rankings, which is great. Um, now I really love these events. I think these are probably the only GT sport events that I'm going to continue doing when they're around. Um, but yeah, it, it's really cool. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, I do agree with the sportsmanship rating, as you've said. It's nice. I think I'm at B right now. But it's really hard to uh, improve the driving's rating. Uh, I don't know what is yours. I think it's you're still at the level D, right? Yeah. And same for me, too. And it seems that... Every time I'm in a good posture, there's always somebody that does a dick move in the race. So I get like either like I spun off or something like that. And then I'm pissed because I always end up like not late or like 
Or the other cases I've I ran into is I qualify around like seven to the seventh to the eleventh position, and I finish the race like around that same range. So it doesn't affect too much the driver rating because I would guess that the driver rating I assume that you should always finish like top five or something like that. And it seemed to me in the races I did is the top two, three people are always like way ahead on their lap. They might have like 20, 30 seconds ahead of maybe the third or fourth position because those are the kind of the expert driver in your driving category. Yep. Um, other thing I realized is sportsmanship, even if it's, uh, you can rank faster in those events, sportsmanship sometimes it's still like, I don't understand why I'm doing, what am I doing wrong, uh, in specific section or in specific actions. So sometimes I get sports, sportsmanship down in a section because I got ram into my car. Like somebody, maybe because I Bro- uh, break early at, at in, in one corner but because of that the person didn't skip look try to uh pass by me and they like really ramp into my rear bumper and i'm like i'm getting like uh, uh sportmanship down I'm like what the fuck like part of the like funny video the, the nice training video they show you before going enabling the sports mode is they tell you like no, if you're about God. to ram into somebody you should put yourself outside the track i'm like but then why am I penalized for the person not doing exactly that? So I wonder if it's because they detect that I should have not break a bit early or something like that. But or it's maybe because I'm putting the other player in that position that I'm being penalized. But there's a couple of actions where I do understand that it doesn't it does make sense but a few of them where I'm like I'm being a bit over uh, over secure and over like a making sure I'm not doing something stupid and then somebody does something stupid to me and I'm being penalized and I don't understand why. Yeah, I think I think the thing with the with breaking in particular and being rammed into by someone else is I think it's a very hard problem to correctly apply the blame for that because in certain cases you could actually see people who are griefing other players and are just breaking in front of them to make them crash into them and making them lose sr so like it goes both ways and i think to a certain degree like there's also accidents happen which are just legit accidents as well and it's tricky to actually not reward or disincentivize correctly based on the intent of the player Mm -hmm. because you can't know the intent and that's sort of a problem in all multiplayer online games Uh, there are much worse online games when it comes to being mean to your other players and i think gran turismo it sort of helps that there is such limited uh communication and ways you can actually mess up your other players um so yeah yeah i think in that situation what we will need to do is we we should try to fake fate and make sure that we are both in the same like championship race and then just try it like either you break early and run into your rear bumper or the inverse and see if both players are penalized and then if we learn that uh, this is how the system works it you're right it does make total sense it's just that since it's so opaque i assume that i'm being blamed on and that, that's why i have these negative attitude and feelings regarding it uh, regarding my driving being penalized but hopefully you're right since they cannot assign blame they assign blame everywhere so then at least uh it is better than just assign a guessing where the blame should be and then maybe doing a false positive 
but yeah uh money money wise as usual no related there you still get a lot of money even if you finish like uh at the end of the uh driver list uh it's easy to gain a lot of credits while doing them and also there's kind of a rank points depending on your position and your driving style that you do in that specific race and i think this rank is used to position yourself worldwide if i understood it properly so if you go look at the things it depends on the event so the gt nations cup is either worldwide ranking or inside your own country so you can see how you rank inside of canada uh for manufacturer cup it's either worldwide or within your manufacturer so i chose subaru so i can see where i rank among all of the subaru drivers okay good to know but uh, the ranking is i think it will be also associated to some prices depending on where you rank i think at the end of the the championship all of this is super vague like there's like almost no information in the actual game about any of this like none none of these details about championship events were known until the championship events actually went live which is kind of baffling and the other thing is like i don't understand the scoring system at all i know there are people with like a thousand six hundred points and i have 90 points and i'm like what are they doing to get that many points i get like Maybe 30 points max a race. Like, I don't understand how they can be at a thousand points. Are they hacking the leaderboards or are they actually getting it? And how do I get those points? No idea because the game doesn't tell you any of that, which is super frustrating. Right. And it comes back to the main, uh, the main problem you have with the game where the esport aspect of it is so opaque that it's frustrating. Yeah. All of this to say that Gran Turismo Sport is an interesting game and I think I will be able to continue playing through it even if uh, the daily events feel a kind of repeating and boring but hopefully we'll see a couple of uh, more championships and I would say I would like to see more divers championships like right now we have two run is more like the driver's one and then the other one is like you compete inside your manufacturer with a contract but I would like to see a couple of events going through at the same time maybe three or four I think the four could be the limit though uh, because uh it, those are 40, 35 to 45 minutes event uh, daily, and I, I do assume that they will think people will uh, connect for at least one or two. But I think having a great variety of types of event, part of those championship, will bring some more um, funness and uh, the diversity to the types of event you could do. And hopefully, maybe, like Yannick mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that maybe the only reason why I'll play this game after I'm done with the campaign it will be just for those championship. Yep, that sounds pretty much like what I'm going to do. Also, I'm at 89% completion on the campaign, so I'm probably going to finish this like this weekend or within the next week. Right, and what would you say to your like time estimate for com- completing the campaign? Like 25, 30 hours, I would say? Oh, much less than that. Oh, okay. Because so- right now I have 25 hours played, except that's across all game modes. Right, right. So maybe half of it is a campaign. The other half is it's online. It's definitely mode. less than half. It's maybe a quarter. Wow. Okay. So you can assume that uh, in ten hours you could compete uh, complete the campaign mode for sure. Like the uh, the one thing that is slowing me down is that now in Mission Challenge uh, there are four endurance races in Mission Challenge. I'm not going to say where they are because I don't want to spoil it. But there are four Thank endurance you. races, and the problem is they take a while to complete. Uh, so that is the major roadblock uh, that I have left to do is I have to get through those to actually be able to finish the campaign. But once those 
are out of the way, the rest of it is actually very short to complete. Good. Okay. I think we're I think we're done with GT Sports. Yep. So let's talk about this new iPhone. Yes. So uh, today I want to talk about uh, the iPhone 10, but I've decided to divide the episode in two parts. Um, the first part will be kind of first impression because I've only spent a couple of days with the device and I don't think I should be able to do a full-on review because like you'll see in a bit, there's portion of the phone that I still haven't used that, in, that I know uh, I didn't have time to kind of force me to use those. And a good example of that will be camera, but more on that later. So let's start with first impression because I want to keep the last part a bit secret. So um, first impression with the phone, I want to talk about the process of getting this phone because it was a bit contentious in uh, the tech community about the rareness of it or the way people could get uh, their end on it. So uh, let's start on October 27th, the day of the pre-order. So it's two Fridays, yes, two Fridays ago. So like an animal, I woke up at 3 a.m. Eastern time to try to put a reservation and order a phone, hopefully for November 3rd, uh, the, which is uh, which was the launch date. But sadly, I was not able to get my order in at uh, fast enough. So I felt in through the next range of deliveries, which is what Apple called the two to three weeks range, which meant an estimated delivery date of November 21st to November 28th. Uh, a couple of days after the pre-order, in the, the following week, uh, we saw uh, all of the reviews come out, all of the videos and everything came out. So it was super interesting to watch all of them, not all of them, but a lot of them and read a lot about uh, the iPhone X. But the main important news that was released and it was released from Apple, it was that starting November 4th at 6 a.m. Eastern Time, Apple would open the will open back the in-store reserve system. And the way it worked during the pre-order period was that if you were lucky to reserve it like at 3.01 uh, a.m., you would able to say, oh, no, no, I don't want to buy it and get it delivered. I want to go pick it up in store. And after this first, after the first kind of batch of phones were already sold, uh, Apple closed that system and opened it back on that day. So after like going through that week of full reviews, full first impression unboxing and all of that stuff, I was quite uh, excited about the phone. I would kind of try to see uh, if I could get one earlier using this system. So again, like an animal on November 4th at 6 a.m., I woke up and went onto this website. And surprisingly enough, I realized that they all of the... Apple Store in the Montreal region were able to get all the devices, all of the configurations. So they had models for all the colors and all of the sizes, and I could uh, reserve one. But sadly, there was, uh, I don't know what's the difference between this page and a typical Apple, I, Apple ID login page, but one password, and I was on my iPad for this, one password could not recognize and was not able to fill in my login information to make my reservation go through. The way the reservation page works is you select the model you want, so color and size, and then it asks you to log in to get your information and for you to select the time. So sadly, for the for the time to for me to open one password and then copy everything correctly, 
the phone call recreation that I wanted, my the two I wanted, were already uh, unavailable a minute or two later. So on that same day, I was able to uh, I was able to meet with some friends that were luckily enough and got their model on the same day, uh, and it could it could help it did help me confirm my decision my color decision uh, and i'll come back on the color decision but after talking to them they they did say that usually in the first few days after the release there's enough stock if you're fast enough that you could do in-store pickup that were their past experience uh, around iphone launch but they did mention that in past experience they saw that the stock would go down quickly so it might get harder than for the next few days in that same first week to get a phone reserved in store the next day i woke up again and was able to uh get one quite uh quickly uh, i was able everything was set up properly on my ipad this time and i was ready to wake up at six refresh the page select the configuration i wanted and then put my name on it and then go to the apple store um now the, the apple store experience was quite funny uh, uh, it's not funny it was not funny because something strange happened it was funny just because it took literally five minutes when you reserve a phone in store um when you resume your phone in store, it gives uh, Apple will provide you with an, uh, a passbook pass, which contains the reservation information. And it's simple as you just go in the Apple store, you show them the passbook, they scan it, somebody goes in the back store, comes back with the phone, asks for your credit card, and you can leave. Obviously, I skipped all of the, like, oh, we can help you configure, transfer your data. So that was really fast and surprisingly fast because in five minutes on the first weekend after lunch, uh, I was able to get my phone and pay for it and leave the Apple Store in maximum 10 minutes. So now I was able to get the phone. Uh, I waited quite uh, a lot during that day to make sure that the phone was working fine, that my backup was transferred properly. So I, in the end, I was not losing my spot in the queue and then decided that after the phone was properly configured, I would then cancel my order. So I was quite happy to save a couple of days Uh and get the phone way earlier than I expected, while um, while having the plan B, which was the order. And I still haven't decided if next, not next year, but when I need to, in two years when I change the phone again, uh, because I've always been on a two-year cycle, whether I would go through that process again. Um, I think maybe what will, uh, maybe I wouldn't wake up for the pre the first pre-order and just maybe wake up for those in-store reservation because it seems that all of the expectation that the phone supply would be completely constrained until 2018 seemed to kind of was now were not funded the fact that uh people and i had a colleague who that went to the apple store last night he just walked in and he assumed that he couldn't get an iPhone 10, so he was looking at the iPhone 8 lineup, and he was like, oh, la, 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 let's ask if uh, there were iPhone 10." And the guy at the Apple Store was like, sure, we have some. And the process was quite funny. When he decided that he could buy an iPhone 10, he ju- the Apple Store rep went through the reserve system, reserved one via the website for him, and then said, okay, I'll, I'm coming back from the back store, and I'll get it for you. It's seemingly that walk-in people cannot buy them, but if they are still 
slot available in the reservation system, they could offer it for walk-in people. So now that's kind of the buying experience uh, that differed a lot because usually for the past two or three phones, I was waiting for the order. And now since I'm in Montreal, it's the first phone since I buy since I moved to uh, a bigger city where there's Apple Store really close to where I live. Is that actually uh, true? I thought you got the 6S when you were in Montreal. No, you're right. No, I forgot about that. <laughs> but I didn't. It's it, it's funny to mention that it seems that the in-store reserve system was available two years ago, but not popular enough because nobody told told me about that. And now it seems that everybody was talking about it uh, this time around. So I don't know if it gained popularity or it's a new system. I wonder if I it's going to still be effective when the next phone comes out. I wonder too. But still, I do remember that I did not go through that route for the for the success. And you're right, my success was bought here because I was waiting at home to get it. Now, yeah, you make me remember uh, stuff. That's good. That's what I try to do. Yes. So now uh, let's move to the uh, the phone and the exact model I got. Uh, I was a bit hesitant on the space capacity because uh, right now my 6S was a 64 gig model and was half full. Um, but still, uh, uh, and I wonder if uh, the 64 gig model of the iPhone 10 could make me buy one, uh, get me one faster. But in the end, since I was able to do the reservation and all of the models were available, I decided to go with the full-on model. And um, on the color spectrum, uh, I was a bit hesitant because on all of my phones that I bought since the iPhone, yeah, the old, the OG iPhone. All of my iPhones were white iPhones, um, and I, st- I wanted to uh, have a new experience, and I just want to have a new look. And it's funny because every time I hear tech people uh, talk about that, they are always the one that are buying the space gray or the black models for years, and I'm like, oh, maybe this year I'll look at the white model or I look at the silver model and it's funny because for me this time around it is the inverse so i decided to go with the space gray uh, 256 model and remember when i was talking with uh, when i was saying that i met some friends uh this the next day after the uh lunch date uh this friends couple they were lucky enough to get their phone on the lunch date but they also bought one of each so i could compare the color without going to the apple store so in that time and Something was not way off, but something was strange with the warmness of the white, the white silver model. I loved my iPhone 4S and the the white model because I think to me the iPhone X the, uh, with its ten class. Yes, I will make this mistake, but that's okay. Uh, with the iPhone 10, its class pack reminded me a lot of the iPhone 4S, and it felt. It felt the white color felt different than the than the iPhone for us. And when I was looking at Apple PR pictures, I couldn't find why exactly I was not in love with the white model like I used to be. And the second reason why I was f- trying to get thinking about getting a new color for this exact phone is because of my Apple Watch. When the Apple, when I bought the Apple Watch uh, around lunchtime, uh, I decided to go with the stainless steel model. And after nearly three or uh, two years at this point of 
wearing it daily, the stainless thing is all like dinged up. It, it still looks nice, but there's a lot of a lot of minor scratches on the stainless steel, and I felt that because of the uh, white slash silver model, I will have the same experience after maybe a couple of months of owning it. The main difference between the space gray and the silver one is, like the name suggests, they are referring to the stainless steel band around the phone, and it's not an aluminum one. It's a really the same stainless steel, or they, they seem to hint at the fact that it's the same stainless steel color and material like the watches, and I've seen a couple of examples of the space gray stainless steel model and it seems that the coating is quite thick enough to kind of hide throughout the months and years those micro abrasions and micro scratches so i do hope that on that aspect the space gray will age better compared to compared to the silver model but who knows maybe in the end i will just end up having uh, a just iphone that looks like the old first generation iPhone that it all dinged up because you poured it in the same pocket as your key so uh, we'll see with the time um, also I want to go through a couple of, of uh, features and specs uh, and I want to start with battery life the reason I want to start with battery life is the last time that I've used an iPhone plus size phone was I think two Christmas ago yeah it's the same Chris the same year that I got my 6s and I wanted to see if uh, I could live with uh, a plus size phone and the main feature that I loved about the plus size phone was the battery life and I'm happy to report that for my first few days the battery life is as good or even better than any uh, plus size phone you can get nearly two days of battery usage with the iPhone 10 and the two best example I can give you give you is I removed the phone from the charger on the first day at 7 a.m. in the morning after I woke up and I put it back on the charger the next day at 4 30 p.m. so it's nearly two days of usage and for the last two days I did the same thing Yesterday morning, I unplugged it from the charger. When I went to bed at around like 11 to midnight uh, last night, it was down to 65%. I decided to put it on low power mode during the night and it only lost 7%. So it was down at 58 And then today, so I put it next to the charger just before we started to record and we record we started to record around like 8 30 8 25 p.m and it was it gave me the 20 percent warning so i could uh if we were not recording i could have gone through a couple of tweets maybe for an hour or two uh could have maybe switched to my ipad to finish the night but i would have nearly got two days of battery life usage with the phone and just to give you an idea of what is my typical uh phone usage on the work week, um, I do listen to podcasts during my commute, and my commute is about to 35 to 45 minutes of uh, Bluetooth listening via the Pizzax. 
uh, I would listen to uh, some podcasts during uh, the day, but not much these days because uh, we are busy, uh, quite busy at work. So I need to uh, talk with a lot of different uh, people at work. So I don't have time to just like focus on coding in front of the computer. So my phone doesn't get that much use uh, during the day, mostly looking at Twitter. And then I have the same commute back home. Um, and today I was able to maybe listen to about three hours. I was, or today was, uh, I was a bit luckier. I was able to maybe say about that three hours of Bluetooth audio listening of stuff. And seriously, for my daily work usage, having battery life, that good battery life is just amazing. Um, I'm surprised that you're not making any comments about not me not talking about Face ID first and just talking with battery life. I, I'm not interested in Face ID. I want to talk about the stupid OLED screen. <laughs> oh, okay. So I'll talk with Face ID first, and then we'll be able to move to screen size and OLED. And spoiler alert, the screen is not that stupid. And I'm, I think I know where you'll be going with this, and I know... But we'll <laughs> I think you uh, don't, but that's going to be fun. Okay. Okay, we'll see. But uh, Face ID, um, at first it's a bit strange because related to that is the home button that is now gone. And for the first day, I can tell you that I was trying to push the home button in the place it used to be and it's not there. And it's just like maddening when it happens to you. It's like you're trying to push on glass and it's, it, it gives a weird feeling. It's so funny. I was like kind of always surprised and... Um, I was surprised and kind of feeling stupid by doing that, but I expected it to happen because of muscle memory. I think my oh my god moment with Face ID was was the first day, it was on Monday morning, the first day when I went uh, to work. Uh, it's November here in Quebec. Uh, November is month where we see temperatures around uh, zero or below zero degrees Celsius. I should say we're getting our first snow tonight here in Trois-Rivières. Yeah, and so it does mean that I'm starting to wear gloves. And do you know what it means? No touch ID. Exactly. First morning, and it was super strange because first morning I got out of my apartment building, I pull up my phone, and I just do the swipe to unlock. The, the no, so I do the swipe to open the the phone, which that was super easy to kind of start building uh, muscle memory. It's just like super intuitive now. I really like their gesture and I really love that gesture on the iPad too, even if it's not for unlocking the phone or um, going to the home screen, but only to the, even if it's only for multitasking, I do uh, love it quite a lot. But to go back to my uh, gloves example, I was holding my phone, did the unlock procedure, and then opened the transit app to see when was the next bus. And while I was looking at the, the bus, I was like, what just happened? <laughs> because usually I was like, trying to unlock with my thumb and then be like, oh crap, I need to remove my gloves and blah, blah, blah. But just like this hesitation that I used to have was not there this time. And for that, and it sounds super stupid because for people that don't have like cold weather, they don't know what what, what wearing glove is and touch <laughs> the problem with touch ID. But just for that split second, I was like, oh my God, that's just crazy how convenient it can be. And, and we didn't realize how sometimes touch ID could be inconvenient. And that was my oh my god moment. If I backpedal a bit about uh, Face ID, there was also other moments where it's it's a bit strange to understand when the sensor is able to fi- to figure out where your face is. And it seems to me that in certain weird 
angles, it's still able to work. But an example where I was watching a video in landscape and by accident I uh, locked my phone and I was trying to unlock it, the phone couldn't figure it out because it was in landscape orientation. So I really had to make sure that I go back and portrait just for the unlock procedure to work and then put it back in landscape. So face ID, like 95% of the time will work a bit like a touch ID. It will work flawlessly when it works. But I still need to get used to the limitation it has, like I did for the past four years at this point. Yes, because it was the first on the 4S, on the 5S, sorry. So it's a bit like Touch ID when it got introduced. It was really nice and quite magical, but we got used to it, got used to its default and problems, and we kind of ignored them, and we'll have to redo that with Face ID. Um, if I could just butt in here and say that oh yes you can <laughs> I, I i have issues with face id um well not really issues it's i i would just say you have issues because you were the first one to receive an emoji from me uh, just say it that's okay uh, that's not really related though <laughs> um so i really like touch id the way it is however i have reliability issues with my fingers uh so i would like something more reliable and face id looks like it might be it so i like that aspect of it i still would prefer using the thumb as the biometric as opposed to the face um just because there's something creepy about the face thing like it's not i i mean i know literally anyone can scan my face and they can do whatever with it and it probably can't fool face id and mr security guy is going to come walking into our podcast room and say oh my god can't you see that uh touch id is super unsafe as well and you should not be using two-factor authentication because two-factor authentication is also flawed and insecure and uh there are tons of people who basically find ways to say that everything that may or may not increase security is actually bad uh and they are right in certain ways and not right in certain ways but basically what's important for us in general is it's going to be very hard to defend against targeted attacks on you um but it makes it generally more secure for randos uh who are not randomly uh who are not targeting you specifically but are just I want to steal this phone, right? Uh, in those cases, Touch ID and Face ID is perfectly effective. Um, I've been seeing a lot of arguments about how uh, Face ID is faster, quote, faster than Touch ID in certain specific uh, cases. And it sort of reminded me of that when you were talking about the gloves thing, because I haven't worn gloves, gloves in years. So like that, to me, that's not a feature because it doesn't fit with my use case. And a lot of the cases that I've been seeing where Face ID is faster than Touch ID also do not fit into my use case. Like people say, oh my God, if you swipe on a notification now, you go directly to the app and it goes way faster than having to move your finger for the stupid Touch ID. And I'm like, I can't tell you the last time I swiped on a notification. I think I stopped doing it when iOS 7 came out. Like at no point that is a thing that I actually do anymore. Now that I have my Apple Watch, I only look at notifications on my Apple Watch and I do not give a fuck about the lock screen anymore. I just want the lock screen to go away as fast as possible. And in that respect, it's not going to be faster with Face ID because when I'm pulling out the phone from my pocket, I'm already doing the Touch ID thing when I'm pulling it out and it's already unlocked by the time I look at it. So I think like for my use cases, Face ID is not faster and therefore that plus the creepiness factor of it being face as opposed to touch ID bugs the hell out of me. But then there's always like this thing nagging me in the back of my head, which is 
yeah, but your finger doesn't get recognized like 30% of the time on Touch ID because your phone hates you. Uh, and this has been the way, by the way, for both of my Touch ID phones. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, maybe Face ID is going to be better eventually, but it, I, it's, I'm just sort of like, okay, you changed something. Congratulations, Apple. I don't really find it's a positive or a negative. It's just kind of a neutral change. It seems like it's pretty much equivalent to first gen Touch ID, and that's about it. It's funny that you mentioned that. I was about to say, um, I realized that I'm getting really used to doing the swipe feature already, the swipe gesture already, a bit like pulling out the phone and using the thumb. I think one place where I saw that it is way slower and a bit clunkier is when I use Apple Pay. Uh, I'm not sure if I really... I never use Apple Pay on the phone, so I don't really care. Oh, you use the watch? Always, always. I have never used it on the phone because Touch ID never fucking works. Oh, that, and that's a problem. On my side, it used to always work, so uh, I had no problems. And the only thing, the only thing I like about the phone is the seriously the notification. Like it, you get you, yes, uh, you get the sounding to making sure like oh, it's approved on the phone. But the fact that you receive a notification tell you the amount and where the where it was, like a couple of seconds after the transaction is complete, is just amazing. And I'm. I know it's it's just like a, a reassurance. It feels I know it's something super just, stupid because you just did the transaction. You know it happened. You don't need a confirmation I know. notification. I know, but it's now that it's the fact that now that I have those notifications, I would like like even if I use my plastic card, I would like my phone to receive those notifications. Like I would like my bank app to do that to say, "Hey, yes, you use your card here. It's fine." You know that if they try to do that, you'll get duplicate notifications whenever you use Apple Pay, and that will be a catastrophe. <laughs> Ignore that part. Ignore that part. And since but, when are banks good at programming apps? <laughs> okay. To go back to the Apple Pay, I think right now that's the only places where I felt that Apple, uh, that Face ID was slower. And I think Apple was saying that you can still put your phone near to the NFC reader and it would light up like any Touch ID phones. Then you need to double tap to confirm and then make sure your face is close enough to read. So what I what I realized for the two or three times I had to use Apple Pay in the last week was that because I know it's it's weirder and clunkier, I do the okay. Let's make sure that I have give intent to my phone saying yes. I know I want to pay that uh, with Touch ID, so I double tap on the uh, side button because now <laughs> like, side button. You realize you could just use your watch and it would be faster than that, and it would be more reliable and less clunky than that like i i don't see you're why kind of anyone stealing, would do this you're kind of stealing a bit of my point maybe i have to revelate doing it with a watch I, I love apple pay on the watch it's the only way you should be doing it if you own a watch and uh i'm not going to accept any arguments that propose yeah like, okay. okay cool you get a notification my watch does a bing when i do the thing too like big whoop uh, i don't care i I know you, I know you don't care and I do for that. So that's okay. But yeah, to me with face ID, I think the place where it felt slower and even slower than first gen touch ID, it's really with, uh, buying stuff using Apple Pay. It seems that the fact that you need to confirm that you're really like trying to use Apple Pay and it makes sense that they're doing that as a security reason, but that step is slowing down the process and i do agree with you Yannick, that if you were if you are an apple watch user you might want to uh consider it back if you're like me and not using it one last point but, about uh face id before we move on or do you have something about apple pay dad no go on okay uh i have been hearing complaints from people with uh rsi problems 
that they are getting like super tired just from swiping up all the time because more of the UI is dependent on swiping up than it was previously on other iPhones. And as someone who has RSI issues, I am not enjoying this idea at all. Um, and part of me would be like, I would find it troubling that I would have to use assistive touch to put a virtual home button on my phone. That sounds disgusting. And I really don't want to do that. Um, so I hope something happens to actually make this less of a pain, but we will probably talk about this more in the screen section because I have so many more complaints about the screen, mm. but let's move on. Yeah. Uh, I think la last thing that is related to the screen is sometimes I know you need to swipe to open, right? To swipe to unlock, but I still feel that sometimes when I tap, first thing that I love about the new screen is you can tap on it like the Apple watch screen and it wakes up amazing. Because sometimes what I do is I just want to see, uh, look at the time or a notification, mostly a notification, and I tap on the screen and it unlocks. Because it's like, best example of that is the phone is on the table in front of me while I play Gran Turismo Sport. I tap on it while I am on a straight portion of the race. I look at it, but it's already unlocked. So if I want to look, uh, reply to Yannick, for example, I don't need to touch it. It unlocks itself and I can continue with, uh, my life. But sometimes, my brain doesn't and doesn't uh like doesn't compute and i'm like why are you not unlock and i assume that because it, i saw the unlock animation of the uh of the of the lock screen where i just tell you oh yes i understood i saw i read your face everything is fine now you can access your data but you still need to swipe and i know uh people were mentioning in reviews that it would be nice to do kind of auto unlock where the uh cover sheet goes away yes Like the stupid be... Touch ID button thing, like that they won't fucking put back to like how it was in iOS 7. Like, don't make so, me press the stupid button. I don't care about my notifications. Yeah, we'll see because sometimes my brain got my brain got confused about that, and I was like, uh, what what what's happening? Oh yes, I need to swipe again, and then swipe. So now let's talk about the screen size. Oh god. And and related to that, the I would talk about the notch. Uh, I would say that a lot of reports. Uh, we're saying that after, during normal usage, you don't see the notch. It's kind of become like just background noise that you ignore quite easily. And that's true. Uh, yes, it, it is uglier in landscape, but you know what? I've never used an iPhone in landscape for the last three or four years. I think the only time I use an iPhone in landscape is when I watch a video on it. Uh, I had issues since the iPhone, the, the 4.7 sizes with the landscape keyboard. And the, it, of course, it is still a problem with the iPhone X. The keyboard is strange in landscape. Um, but, um, that was my, previously that was my main reason on smartphone to be using landscape, especially when I was texting. And now with, since the iPhone 6, I was not using landscape. So I don't plan to use landscape on the iPhone X. But regarding the size, since the, uh, width of the screen in pixels, in points is the same as an iPhone 4.7 inch size, the, the best description, and I've uh, I've heard of it a lot uh, during the reviews, is it feels like the 4S to 5 transition, where the phone in end feels like the previous generation, but just with more information. And I'll come back in the second part of the episode about this more information part, but... Uh, in a lot of cases, in a lot of apps that are uh, optimized now for the iPhone X, it does show 
more information and the UI itself doesn't feel strange. You just feel that you it is taller so you can have access to more information. And um, you wanted to talk about the screen quality and I want to hear what you have to say before I give my impressions of it. Okay, well, first of all, I have to say that I have not seen an iPhone X yet. So I am not talking about whether this screen looks good or not. I am talking purely on paper. I disagree with the screen. Um, and of course you disagree about it theoretically. Theoretically. Yeah. Um, and like, I, it's the same thing. Like I said this about the Apple Watch. And the, when we found out the Apple Watch was OLED, I said, all of these complaints I have about it are going to be true because it's an OLED device and only time will tell if these are actually deal breaking issues on the apple watch it is not a significant issue because you are not watching video or looking at pictures that much on that device it is primarily there as a watch face and as a notification delivery tool and at that it is perfectly fine the screen i have no complaints about it uh where i have a lot more issue with it is when the iphone 10 can potentially be one of your primary computing devices I'm going to be much more anal about the quality of that screen than I'm going to be any other time. And this is, first of all, it's an OLED display. I despise OLED as a technology. I think it's an embarrassment to the entire fucking industry. Uh, oh my goodness. Oh. Okay, continue. Uh, OLED is, you know how people blame Apple of, um, saying that they intentionally cripple their devices to sell their newer devices? OLED is basically like the number one planned obsolescence technology in the world because the level of burn-in in OLED is unparalleled. It is so bad. I have the, my grandma's Windows phone has her name burnt into the screen because literally it was the only person my mom was talking to on that phone and her name is burnt into that screen permanently now and it didn't even take that long to get there. And that is sort of the kind of thing that you do not want on an Apple device. Like, this is the kind of thing that you would think, hmm, maybe Apple should never use OLED displays because these displays are shit and they never do anything right. Uh, the other thing, it's a pentile uh, uh, pixel arrangement. Now, I have two opinions on this, which are inconsistent with each other. So let's start with a bad one. Uh, the bad one is that Pentile basically guarantees that there is no parity between red, green, and blue pixels. Uh, every pixel sort of shares a subpixel with another display. So calculating pixel density isn't even the same as on other devices because you have shared elements and shared subpixels and it's very strange. And the arrangement basically makes it so that you have inherent color hue if you uh, turn the screen from side to side you have color shifting and all that stuff which is gross uh, and you can just look at a Samsung phone and be like what the fuck this phone sucks because it looks blue 95% of the time um, and uh, the uh, iPhone X uses basically an, a, a pentile uh, layout now the counter argument to this which a lot of people will bring up and I do acknowledge this which is why I want to see one of these phones is the pixel density on the iPhone X is so high that in theory you should not be able to make out any of the artifacts that you see, especially around text on OLED displays, uh, that make it bad. And I, w I would say regarding that, and I would like, of course, next time we meet, I would like you to look at it uh, because I'm not the type of person that like can see those problems. Usually I need to be trained to see those problems. Uh, but it feels to me that um the screen looks great like it is expected as 
an iPhone screen to look great, and it does. And maybe to put like you're excusing a bit the Apple Watch screen, but everything you mentioned about your mom's Samsung phone is the same thing with the watch. The watch, like you said, it is for notification and for a clock and for like at least static information okay, showing on a screen all the time. So burn in should happen on the watch and there's a difference. Hopeful- there's a difference. The phone screen is open much longer than the watch screen is because the watch is basically meant to close itself as quickly as possible. You'd be surprised at how quick the phone turns itself off for the phone, like uh, for the screen. It, oh, because you have like be... auto sleep on. See, I never enable that shit because I, yeah, that's I... not how I use my phone. Like, I don't want that shit on my phone. I don't want that. I don't want auto brightness. I don't want any of this bullshit that is meant to compensate it, for OLED's shortcomings. I it, want a phone that is that good. You, if, it's <laughs> funny that you no. It's funny that you complain about auto uh, auto brightness because even on my 6s in the past few months, I realized that auto brightness was sometimes off when it not it was not in the past where i would do add to do some correction and not like way off correction but in cases where it would like put the brightness all the way down it would kind of put it somewhat all the way down and then you're in the bed so i'm still used to those correction and i don't know if you do that but even when I had auto brightness off, I would do those correction all the time. It's just that now with auto brightness on, I do less correction. So for me, it's a win situation in that case. No, see, in my, might... in my case, I just have a forced 28% brightness all the time. And that is what I use all the time because it's fine in all situations where I use my phone. And I don't want to change it because that is perfect for every situation. And like, this is the thing is it feels like... And again, like, I will fully acknowledge iPhone X looks like a beautiful phone. It looks great, like, if we're just talking about the physical design of the phone. The display might look amazing in real life. I don't know. I haven't seen one. Can't tell. I can't say. But it feels like this entire device is built to showcase this display, which has flaws. And the entire operating system is being manipulated in ways to compensate for that display's flaws. And those compensations are things that I disagree with philosophically, and therefore... It just makes me pissed that this phone has a shitty OLED display when it could have another IPS and it would be fine. Uh, now, I'm not even saying that this design is possible with an IPS screen. I don't know if it is. Might not be. Uh, but I'm just saying, fundamentally, like, this phone is meant to showcase a screen and I disagree with the screen. Therefore, this phone is flawed to me. Um, yeah, I think, and I think the reason why you disagree with it is because of the previous implementation. And I'm not saying that the current implementation in it in the iPhone looks way better and it will be always way better in the future it might have the same problems as any older oled screen but it seems to me that and from the look of it it seems to me that apple took the best one on the market and even for that i will have i will agree that to i will agree that we disagree on that but it seems that it is as best as it could be and maybe this is not the way those phones should go but i'm sick and tired of hearing people coming about oled screen where i think in the past year, we see an example of bad OLEDs, yes, but the IN OLEDs are amazing. But I think, like, there's another thing that is amazing about OLED is that people often praise OLED, like, people who actually like the Samsung phones and the LG phones, which have shipped with OLED phones traditionally. What they are fans of is not necessarily the OLED technology. What they are fans of is 
I like that Samsung makes this super saturated display where everything looks wrong on it. Uh, Korean companies do this in particular because, like, the Korean aesthetic in general is super saturated. Like, if you've watched a K-pop music video, everything is super saturated, and I wouldn't want to watch it on a Samsung phone because it would look double saturated and it would probably, like, it made my eyes explode. Um... And I, th- I would like to see that though. It, it must be insane. And like, that was one of my problems with the Windows phone. No, I was talking about your eye explode, oh. but that's okay. Uh, but that was one of my issues with the Samsung Windows phone that I had is I was looking at my own photos on it and everything looked so saturated that I didn't even want to look at my photos on them because they didn't look right. And what gives me hope for the iPhone is that Apple has always really cared about good color, good color quality and sticking to srgb and i think that might actually hurt them in reviews because a lot of people stylistically disagree with that but it is the correct choice like i i don't care about your personal preference it is the correct choice to go with srgb because that's what it is um and so th- there's hope for that now i would like to move on to the screen size if you don't have anything else to say because the screen size is uh, also excuse, excuse me excuse me I, I would like to note here that it's your episode you t- uh <laughs> No, that's fine. I would just like to note that the whole like screen quality section was a Yannick rant here. Yeah, definitely. Because you don't care. Uh, because you think it's fine. And that's fine. No, and, and it's not, I don't care. It's, I think the screen is fine. And I think this screen is as good as an Apple screen. And yes, there's limitation with OLED. And I think Apple will like make those judgment call. And you know what? If the screen ends up being like the MacBook Pro keyboard, I'll, I'll just say, yeah, Nick, you were right. And I'll just own to that saying that I was wrong. I thought Apple would do something and it would fix those issue, but I was clear along and they did just do it a fucking MacBook Pro keyboard out of that screen. And I hope it is not. And like, and I think curse of first generation right now, Apple products, as always, like maybe second generation is going to fix magically all of the issues if there are any with this one. Like maybe the screen not working in low temperatures in Canada, which is a thing that has happened in recent days. And I, apparently Apple says they're going to fix it in a software update, which is kind of what the fuck. But okay. <laughs> right, right. We'll see because it might just be a manufacturing problem with the first patch, which my success had a problem of that like i was part of the recall because of the battery there was a problem with the first batch of battery manufactured for the success so i went to the apple store a year after and they were like oh yes here are free, <laughs> here's a free battery because of that Oh, you mean the same it issue happened. i had on my six that they didn't acknowledge existed on the six but also existed on the success oh really i forgot about that it's literally the same problem i had with the six. Oh, then sure same problem then but they acknowledge it for it and we'll see. So unless you want to bitch about OLED for the next 20 minutes, I would say let's move. But uh, the co- the screen quality is nice. I think the True Tone on it. Oh, God, I uh, forgot like, about True Tone. Fuck, that also sucks. Know, no, yes. I know, oh, I know you don't like it. I love it on the iPad and I love it on the phone. And I think uh, I won't say like, uh, please email me because I think I email is have dead. Link for that. Yes, that, but also I have also already have Yannick to hate me because I said that I love them, those feature, but I do. Uh, what do you want to talk about the size? Because I think we could talk about the size in the next portion of the episode. So I just want to go through, uh, one last point about the first impression and then we can move to second part. Well, it, it's more on an ergonomics point of view. Uh, which, uh, no, okay. Okay. Keep you that want to wait, Okay. Yes. Um, so uh, the two last points I want to talk about the specs and just part of my first impression is um, CPU-wise, 
phone feels fast, but I didn't have any apps. I'm just running my typical like like Safari, the Tweetbot app, and Overcast to listen to podcasts. Like I haven't run big apps yet on it. The smart speed might, isn't faster. <laughs> if it is, I don't realize it. Seriously, that uh, was a so joke. Yet, I know it was a joke. <laughs> I know, but uh, but still, like uh, CPU and cameras, which are a big improvement to like any new iPhone, those are the two features where CPU is like, of course, it works and it's there and voila, but I was not able to experience its power. And same with cameras. I haven't played with the cameras yet because I was super busy for the week. And when I set up the phone, I was more playing with Face ID and the unlock and the screen and stuff like that and forgot that there was new cameras. But I do plan to uh, try to use them. Uh, the I think the only thing I would say is I am quite excited to have the best iPhone camera. Uh, I think we uh, we worked we talked a lot about in previous photo management slash photo episodes that uh, Yannick and I are moving quite a lot, especially me. I won't talk too much to you, but uh, especially me, we're moving to uh, iPhone-based for a workflow for uh taking pictures and everything picture related being on the phone so having a way better camera with me all the time is quite exciting so part number two after i gave our typical like first impression slash review because i think this one is more of a first impression i decided to do something different here i would like to revisit um, some key technologies in UIKit that makes some uh, that makes the iOS app work on the iPhone 10. So obviously Apple introduced new technologies to make your app adaptive for the iPhone 10 screen, but those technologies are based on work that Apple has added to UIKit for the last few years. And but first, let's talk a bit about uh, technically for developers, what does it mean uh, to run your iOS app in the full native resolution of the iPhone 10? And I think this is where you'll be able to have your uh, discussion size because first of all, like we discussed about the during the uh, OLED discussion, the iPhone 10 is the first iOS device that run at full 3X mode. So this is the GPU renders the screen at 3X and also the displays shows it at 3x um, like we all like i also mentioned in the size screen uh the 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 width of the screen point wise is the same as a 4.7 inch iphone so it's 375 points but its height is 815 so it gives about 20 percent more vertical space when you're in portrait compared to normal 4.7 inch phones also another change in UIKit that is uh, different from compa- compared to other phones um, I call it a benefit of the notch you could you could uh, say that I'm exaggerating a bit here. <laughs> yes or sugar coating I think it is a better term but Apple now made the status bar consistent whether you're supposed to have the double height status bar uh, in a normal phone or not. Like in an example where you're in a phone call where it becomes double height in green and stuff like that where you used to uh, adapt your app for this. But now all of this stays in the notch area. So for any apps, the status bar is consistent, which in of itself is not a big change, but it's like an in- I think it's a nice way to use this kind of 
lost area around the notch and keep the status bar uh, consistent because it's a one thing to think and one less thing to think about um you wanted to talk about the screen size yes um one thing that I have found very entertaining in the large migration of iOS screen sizes over the years is that effectively the addressable portion of the screen that people are actually capable of using on their phone is staying pretty much constant. Which is to say that when the iPhone was a 3.5 inch screen, you could reach pretty much every corner of that screen perfectly fine. But as the screens grew bigger, the actual area that your thumb could reach to didn't actually get bigger, so you had to basically box in your touchable or your most frequently intractable items into a region of the screen that is like basically 3.5 inches diagonal either on the right or left side of the screen, depending on if they're left or right-handed. Although in practice, nobody designs for left-handed people. Sorry, left-handed people. Um, yes, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. So, and it's kind of infuriating. Like a couple of years ago, there was this talk like maybe Apple should redesign iOS so that maybe the stupid uh, UI navigation bar isn't always at the top of the screen because it's impossible to reach that on most iPhones. And as more and more people join the hashtag plus club, uh, which is really bad because it's plus club. It's they're, they're wrong. It's SE fam. Hashtag SE fam. SE fam who can now fit one tweet into their tweet bot. Uh, now that tweets are 280 characters long. Um, I, I think I will make you rage quit the show. I think you should not be on the show anymore. I think this iPhone is a catastrophe. Um, oh my goodness. So yeah, what I was saying is basically it, it's becoming really hard to design applications where everything is reachable while also respecting the UI conventions of iOS. Uh, and Apple doesn't seem to be getting the memo because they seem to be putting like all of the most frequently used stuff still on the top of the screen where you can't reach and stuff like that. And like control center baffling that they would actually put that in the notch. Like I get the clever trick they were going for, but in practice, it's not a very good place to put it. Um, and yeah, it's kind of an ergonomic nightmare and I would like to see Apple completely redesign the OS to actually take into account the reality of these things. Like I think Windows phone. Again, Windows Phone gets full credit. They actually designed around this because the most frequently used stuff was at the bottom of the screen where it was easier to reach than at the top of their larger screens. Um, and now, unfortunately, we also have the problem where the home indicator is on the bottom of the screen, and that becomes a conflicting zone because you don't want to put things too close to the home indicator. And now it becomes an even bigger challenge to actually design your UI in a way that respects UI conventions while also being usable and ergonomic and i i'm so happy i'm not in the business of designing ios apps in 2017 because this phone is a fucking nightmare to design for and like it's been true since the plus days but especially this phone it's like i don't even know how to design stuff and i thought like i was also thinking about landscape stuff this week because i was thinking if i had actually continued de developing eos how would i have done the landscape mode in a way that wouldn't look like complete garbage on the iphone 10 and i was unable to come up with an actual answer <laughs> Wow, it's funny. I, I I think there was a reason why I asked you to keep this section here because I made all you your points. No, you entered at a lot of the problems developers encountered while designing and developing for the iPhone 10. And yes, um, you'll see a lot in uh, the de the dev sphere that some of the solution that uh, part of the solution that Apple provided is quite simple, but doesn't solve all of these problems. It solves none of the problems in part. 
yeah, I, I would say it does solve the main problem of making sure you don't have stuff where you should not put stuff. But you might say that after that, if you want to optimize your screen for the screen space, it might be harder to do. A bit like with the uh, plus size phones. But um, if we want to uh, continue on the way it was before, and then we'll be able to see what is what the way it is right now for the iPhone 10, I want to revisit uh, the before iOS 11 time. Because like Nick mentioned, even if before the screen was squared, you still had to make sure that you could skip bars at the top and the bottom because major iOS elements are either at the top or at the bottom. And there was a call, the class, a protocol called UI layout support. And that was introduced in iOS 7, mainly because content could go under the bar and you need to make sure to offset your content properly or make it attach to the bottom of the bar properly and not rely on the fact there's a bar itself, but just to rely on a, I don't want to use the word anchor because it will come later, but don't rely on an anchor that moves depending of the view that is shown on screen right now. Um, so it was used to, it was used to get a safe attach point to the top and the bottom of the screen. And, um, it sadly was only on the UI view controller. And it was a weird protocol because at first it was really hard to use with auto layout. It, it added like a length property and then you had to do your calculation yourself and then look at this property and then create your constraints around it until iOS 9 where in iOS 9, I think iOS 9 was the first step on uh, Apple introduced a lot in iOS 9, uh, especially for UI-wise UI for developers. But in iOS 9, we saw the first step where uh, we're first step to the road to all of the changes we've seen in the iPad and especially in the iPhone 10. Because in iOS 9, Apple introduced NS Layout Anchor. And the other part they introduced is UI Layout Guide. And those two parts are uh, inter uh, are like, directly connected. So uh, NS Layout Anchor is a first class citizen for UI Layout Base UI. Because of that new class, you no longer need to use the clunky uh, visual format language or the verbose matte base API where like the base of auto layout is you, def you use the, the typical matte y is equal at ax plus b. So it's a typical line linear uh, formula where like imagine it's say like the left side of my view is equal at a multiplier plus the left side of an the right side of the view plus another constant. There was an API for that, and this API was really verbose and really like you had to specify all of the parameters. I want to say like, oh, okay, this view dot like its property, and you add this multiplier, you add this con you multiply by this, and then add this content, and you put assign that to this other value. With uh, NS layout constraints, you you could just create constraint constraint based on the same type of a constraint. You, there was compile time checks between constraint on the x-axis and the y-axis, and you could make sure that because you could make sure that at compile time you were attaching things to the right place, because especially with visual uh, format language, since it was kind of a text syntax, you could attach it to anything else, and it was easy to make error. And obviously, with the verbal API, if you you needed to do a lot of calls to create a UI, so you could do poor copy and paste and then end up attaching stuff you should not attach together. 
also NS Layout Anchor is a concise API. Um, if you want to create a constraint where an anchor is attached to another one without specifying any of the modifier, like a multiplier or a constant space between those two, there's API methods where you just say anchor is equal to other anchor and it returns you a constraint where you can add to the view. No need to specify all of the form, the, the, all of the variables in the formula describable that is the base of auto layout. And all of those anchors are accessible on UI view, which is really nice because you can always at you usually when you create a UI, you always use UI views everywhere and you need to attach to everything. And they define all of them from the top, bottom, left, right, leading, trailing. So make sure that they're spanning everywhere. Also, if it's labels, you can specify baseline. But on top of those anchor, sometime the system would like to define areas of the view that can be hidden or that can contain other stuff on top of it. So the anchors by default on UI view are used to describe the full area of a view, but there's also other anchors that the system can provide that are specifying different areas of a view. And for that purpose, Apple introduced UI layout guides. Because before its inception of UI layout gates, guides, certain API required you to add dummy views that were hidden, but part of the view hierarchy. And the purpose of these views were really to create relationship using this auto layout technology between views that were on screen. I think the best example uh, you had to use those is you want to make sure that there was a equal white space between two, three views. So yeah, like a view, white space, view, white space and another view. And if those two white space area you wanted the same width, you needed to do something like that, where you add a view that is not shown, but you define a cons uh, like a width constraint on them and all of that stuff. So creating complex UI using auto layout at that time was more complex than it needed to be. I remember. Uh, that was back in the yeah. day I was using it. <laughs> yeah. And the... The main problem with that strategy is you're polluting the viewerarchy without giving, like, without giving views to show to the user. So it meant that your layout was complex and also hard to debug. And even if you were to force to add those dummy views to help you lay out your stuff properly, you could even run into performance issues because there was too much views in the viewerarchy and the system would kind of start to slow down. And UI layout guide was created to uh, solve this issue where you want to specify a region in your view where no content, like no view should be there. Like it should be white space. So a layout guide is really like these dummy views, but they are not part of the viewerarchy. They have their own viewerarchy, but they do act like normal UI views. You can create constraints on them. They also have anchors. So the same list of anchors that I mentioned on UI views earlier, you can have access to them. And the nice part of this new API is you can create your own layout guides. And on top of that, the system provides two of them. They provide some of them. And since iOS 9, it's two. They provide two uh, layout guides. The first one called UI, uh, it's called layout margin guides. And as its name suggests, it represents the area that is inserted 
compared to the other anchors, it's inserted to create the, the view margin. So it's the area that is inserted by the view margin. And the other one is readable content guide, and it represents an area with a readable width when the view. So it's another area that Apple, um, depending on the current context of your application, resizes to make the content of this view easier to read. And it's, it's this, especially this one, the readable content guide is super interesting because it addresses itself per device and per size less. And this feature shines quite greatly on iPad and also on multitasking. And it is used quite heavily in the Mailer app to make the text more easy, more legible and easier to read depending on which orientation you are or if you're on multitasking and side by side. So taking all of those technology into consideration, um, Apple knew that iPhone 10 was coming. Of course, it knew when iOS 11. And in iOS, iOS 11, they decided to add a third system provided UI layout guide. And this one is called the safe area. And the goal of the safe area layout guide on UI view was to replace the top layout guide and the bottom layout guide on UI view controller. And by adding it, I think that's, this is where the magic is to me. And it's the fact that they are moving the safe area guides, because in a way, if you think about it, they were the, the safe area guides only for the top and the bottom. And by moving them to the view, it makes your auto layout code way simpler because every view can assume support, can define support for the safe area, but doesn't mean that it needs it because maybe it's a view inside of a view inside of a view where the system won't need to insert it properly because there's no safe area to protect. So it's easier for the developer to define views where they are already designed and the developer can think about them in, uh, in thinking about the safe area. And it makes sure that all of the views in your application from now on supports the safe area, whether they need it or not. Last but not least, all of what I discussed is related a lot to auto layout. And if you're somebody that doesn't use auto layout, you can also have access to the safe area insets on UI view, which is used to uh, give you access to the inset where you can do your own calculation manually. If we were to stop here, like this change is quite heavy because you were relying on other parts of the of the UI kit to give you access to the top and bottom area, uh, the top and bottom layout guides. And now you need to go back I think it's kind of the magic and a bit of the downside of it is since it's now moved to UI views, you need to edit, all, you need to audit all of your views in your application to make sure that right now they attach the safe area layout guide if you want to officially support the iPhone 10. And I think that's kind of where you were ending at in the introduction where now it's like a painful to think about, oh, am I in orientation in landscape or where should I put my button where it makes sense and it's like easier to reach and stuff like that. But at least the way that the safe area layout guides are defined right now, you can think about it. Doesn't mean that the safe area layout guides with an anchor can give you the the space and the anchor points to attach it where it should be for your case, but at least it makes you think about those cases. I think the uh, two other parts where you need to think about is, uh, and it is those two are where it gets more complicated. If you're doing a lot of search UI in your application, uh, iOS 11 had a lot of changes for the UI search controller and where to put a search bar in the system. Um, 
and this is where you have to do a lot of edits because uh, there was um, different ways to show a UI search bar driven by a search controller. I think the two most uh, popular instances were you show it as a table header view of a table view or you just show it part of a UUI. And right now, if you wanted to respect the safe area, you need to move it to a navigation bar, which is at the top and goes back to the problem Yannick was mentioning about a reachability of it. And last but not least, I think all of the iPhone, iPhone and iOS application that I use daily are based either on UI collection view or even UI table view. There's a couple of important changes in UI table view that are for the iPhone 10 and the main one is the content view of a cell is default defaults to be inserted to a safe area automatically and it might be a behavior that you don't want so you have to edit all of your cells to make sure that in all of those contexts you need to make sure that it handles it properly and if you don't want to do that you can disable this behavior on the table view itself so there's on UI table view insets content views to safe area where if on that specific table you don't want the behavior, you can disable it. And I think that's kind of the, the main approach right now. And it's the, the part, it's kind of the conflicting problem where I see it. If you look at each changes line by line here that I've discussed, it looks easy to do. But then what you realize quite quickly, if you have a kind of a well-maintained application is, and a quite big application is there's a lot of auditing, a lot of views, like, there's a lot of views in the application, and if you're using uh, Xibs to create your UI views and your UI view controllers, there's a lot of it, a lot of them that you need to audit to make sure that everything is right. And I think that's the main problem I've seen daily with right now the apps that are optimized. Either you're not optimized right now and you get later box, or when you optimize, rare are the developers that went through all of their UI in their complex apps. There's always one screen that they forgot. And I think the that's where the process is a bit tedious is the fact that you need to go through all your all your screens and there's no way to kind of have, there's no way to kind of do that a bit uh, pro, uh, by a process that the, it will be easy uh, it will be easy for developers to forget about the screen and to, and then it they ship with a screen that is not optimized for iPhone X 10 obviously yes Come on, Yannick, come You've on. You've said it like five I'm... times this episode, and I, I kept quiet for all but two of them. Yes, but still, I, I knew that. That's why That's why I entered that at the title, is that it should be iPhone 10 and iPhone X. I will make the, uh, send the this mistake. But just to say the least, uh, I think you can do minimal work, but I think what we've been uh, seeing a lot for the last about two or three weeks since people started to optimize their app is people wanted more control, and... I do hope that in future uh, version of UIKit, we are able to get more control to put more uh, UI components on screen like the iPhone X. Do you have anything else to add regarding this? Not really. That's good. Cool. So, uh, you seem lost. That's not Yeah, good. I'm having a bit of a stroke right now. Um, so you can find this episode on our website at limitlesspossibility.net slash 76, or you can find all of our episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can find the show on Twitter 
at Limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. You can find me complaining about the iPhone 10 screen on Twitter. Oh my goodness. At Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. I try to stick to 140 character tweets because they won't fit on my screen. And what, what do you mean? Do you, well, oh, yes. I should send you a screenshot phone. of the tweets people are posting on my phone. It is fucking ridiculous. I feel uh, like I'm using an iPhone like 3G. I, I, I think- uh, yes, ah, oh, but this is how it feels to own an SE these days. Well, that's because people are doing it wrong. Like, Twitter was fine as uh, 140 characters. You don't need the fucking, like, app.net tried it and it failed. So in six months, let's see if Twitter is still around. And you can also find me on Twitter while I facepalm myself while reading Enix tweets at Lucanoush. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And you might see me just facepalming myself hard enough that I reply sometimes to Yannick. It might happen. We're having a facepalm competition, so if you want to participate, uh, just follow us, and uh, every time I post something frustrating, you can facepalm and reply to me, and I will fave it. Wow. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.